Hi, welcome to the Romance Me podcast. This is Erica. And I'm Em, and we'd like to say a special hello to our number one and only fan by Grab Thar's Hammer by the Sons of War Van. I'll probably avenge you. Probably. Probably. You know, I'm not too tired. We'll see. It's like at the end of the workday, you know. Do you feel lucky? I'll, I'll, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. <laughs> <laughs> Today, we'll be discussing Tears of Tess by Pepper Winters. On a romantic anniversary trip with her vanilla boyfriend, Tess still feels like something is missing from her seemingly perfect life. While trying to ignore the absence of a certain je ne sais quoi and appreciate what she has, she is abducted and sold to a mysterious man who may be able to fulfill her long-wished unspoken fantasies if she can fulfill his. Content warning for... Sex trafficking, sex slavery, rape, sexual violence, non-consensual acts, abuse, and assault. And there are multiple scenes where the hero harms the heroine. There will be spoilers beyond this point. So Erica, is Tessa's life neat? (laughs) Are you going to sing it for us? No. (laughs) No. I did not agree to that. (laughs) (laughs) Tess spends a lot of time in the beginning of this book trying to convince herself that her life is perfect. She's almost done with college. She's been with her boyfriend Brax for two years. And he's amazing. Almost completely. She really only has one complaint. And that complaint is that her sex life isn't exactly what she wants it to be. Now... (laughs) (laughs) When this book started and she started complaining about how, oh, my sex life isn't fulfilling, I was like, okay. And she's like, I want to be a little more adventurous. She kind of wants to do like BDSM oriented things. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, okay, you get some girl, you go for it. But then the times that she and Brax have sex in this book, I'm like, oh, girl. Oh. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) You were trying to tell yourself that was good. Like, <laughs> you're trying to tell yourself that you can live with that for the rest of your life. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> he is like the quintessential, like, I mean, he's super vanilla, like missionary in the dark with the covers up type of guy. <laughs> but in addition to that, he has absolutely zero concern for her pleasure yeah. at all. And, for whatever reason, has made her feel that she also should have zero concern for her pleasure. (laughs) Tess, who needs pleasure? Never gonna get it. Tess is 20 years old, and any normal 20-year-old probably could tell you, you know, if they date, that you gotta go through a few bad boyfriends before you find a good one. But Tess has glommed on to Brax. She feels a, like a kinship with him almost. She's got a little bit of abandonment issues. There may be reasons why she's a little, you know, claws out clingy. Yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. For Tessa's backstory, we learn she was, she was a surprise slash mistake baby that her parents had later in life. Her parents actually sued the place where, or the surgeon or whatever, that performed her father's vasectomy because he had another child afterward. 
That's taking things a bit too far. <laughs> she has one brother who's 30, so 10 years older than her. Throughout the story, her parents were just narcissistic, I guess. Like, Yeah, I mean, they're pretty self-absorbed. They kind of don't care about their kid. Yeah, they, they care about her brother, but they don't care about her. Like, they have their family, and then, oh, oops, here's this other one. We don't want that one. I wonder if it's, like, one of those preferential treatment to male child versus female child, or if it's just, we never intended to have you, and yet you happened. Mistakes were made. <laughs> uh, yeah, we don't really know what where the parents are actually at in their headspace, like what they're actually thinking. But the way Tess has interpreted it is that she's, quote, ruined their retirement. They have no use for her. They don't care about her. They hardly ever talk to her. They're mostly concerned about, like, themselves and the child they planned. It's just, it's strange to me. Especially a 10-year age difference between siblings is not all yeah. that extreme. That's you know that's a good point. It's like the son must have been a, a late and later in life child too. Yeah, but I mean they okay, so they plan one kid, they have an accident kid. Okay, first of all, when the mother became pregnant with an unwanted baby, why didn't she, you know, have an abortion or why didn't they give the baby up? I know it's like a weird situation, but isn't that better for the kid in the long run to have a chance with, you know, a family that loves them? I would think so. I don't know. It makes me kind of wonder, like, if either Tess doesn't know the whole story or if she is somehow really misinterpreting things, like unreliable narrator. This book is only through Tess's point of view, and Tess frequently changes how she thinks about things. So I don't know. But she does consistently think her parents suck. Yeah. Meanwhile, Brax's family died in an accident, like a car accident, I think. Yeah. And so he's he's all alone in the world. So they kind of are like two lost souls that have found each other. And it's a very codependent relationship. Brax wants Tess for the comfort that Tess provides him. And Tess feels responsible for providing that comfort and and really that's what their relationship is and when she thinks about Brax like possibly not wanting to be with her or not being able to provide what Brax needs she starts freaking out like in her head anytime that comes up she starts thinking like oh I failed oh it's my problem not his yeah but at any rate she's in this relationship with Brax <laughs> they've been together for two years and as a two-year anniversary gift celebration type thing he has surprised her with a trip out of the country they they're from australia see if i can say it the australian way they're from melbourne okay how'd i do not as bad as i was expecting it was with an american accent so thumbs up <laughs> <laughs> so the trip ends up being to like one of those inclusive resorts in cancun mexico and while they're at the airport, he's telling her, like, the flight security people can ruin the surprise for me. I'm not going to tell you where we're going. And Tess is, like, in her head, she's thinking, oh, good, I'm ready. Mm -hmm. she, she, has, she has this plan that she's going to use this trip to Mexico or use this, she's going to use this surprise vacation to 
show Brax what she wants in bed. And she has big hopes and dreams that he's gonna go, heck yeah, let's do this thing and it'll be good. And she keeps trying to imply like, oh yes, I'm looking forward to the sexy times ahead. Trying to kiss him or jump on him or suggest they should join the Mile High Club while they're waiting in line. And Brax is like, you know I don't like PDA. Like, stop touching me. We just stand here and leave room for Jesus. Hands to yourself. It's hurtful. Like, yeah. Tess is in such a bad way that she views these rejections from Brax as failings on her part. Yeah, she takes it very personally, which is understandable. Yeah, Brax surprises her. I think they're still in line, or maybe they're on the plane at this point. She's learned she's going to Cancun. Brax surprises her with a gift jewelry box and she opens it and it's a bracelet and she really likes it and Brax tells her which this part is kind of sweet I guess but he tells her that you know I'm worried you know someday you'll decide I'm not good enough for you and I always want to be with you and this bracelet is a promise you know once I can afford the ring that you deserve or whatever then I'll get that and she's happy like she likes it she's she's excited about it Yay. I don't know. You don't know about her happiness? I just hate Brax. <laughs> While they're waiting in line before the surprise is spoiled and she knows where they're going, he says, in fact, if I could, I'd blindfold you until we got there so it would all be a complete surprise. And she like thinks this is so sexy and she's just thinking about like, yes, blindfold me. I want to be completely at your mercy, blah, blah, blah. Right? Uh-huh. And then she says to him, though, You could do that, you know. You could tie me up. Brax looks at her and he says, What the hell? That's the third time you've quipped about bondage. Hint. Yeah, those those aren't quips, Brax. (laughs) That's your woman telling you what she wants. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm just harping on this because I don't want to move forward. (laughs) (laughs) But granted, if you don't want to have that kind of relationship, that's fine. That just basically means that they're ultimately incompatible sexually. Yeah, they're not communicating very well. This illustrates that. And neither of them are willing to call it off because they're codependent. Yes. They finally get to Mexico. He's going to see about where the um, shuttle to the resort is. And he leaves her there with the luggage. And while she's alone, this man approaches her and says he's a taxi driver. And, oh, are you all by yourself? I could take you wherever you need to go. I'm a taxi driver. And Tess is like, um, no. (laughs) And her, like, (laughs) her spidey sense is like, danger. (laughs) So this is the beginning of the creepiness in Mexico. And it just kind of gets worse. Brax comes back and just kind of puffs his chest and the guy skitters off. He's like, we don't need your help. Thanks anyway. You can be elsewhere now. They get to the hotel and it's... It's lovely. She's very happy about where they're staying. And she's ready to like, okay, are we going to do this? Are we going to break in our our new bed? Brax is like, no, I'm tired. (laughs) So she feels all sad. And then he notices she feels sad. And he's like, well, I guess we can do stuff if you want to. How nice of you. She goes into the bathroom and she puts on her sexy lingerie that she bought. And she has her vibrator. The whole time, she's just thinking to herself that she looks dumb. Why is she even doing this? It's silly. But what she wanted to do initially 
was to, you know, empower herself and be like, I'm a sexy woman. This is what I want. Please, can I also have orgasms during (laughs) sex? But she comes out. He thinks she looks really sexy, but then she pulls out her vibrator and he's just like, oh. And she's like, I want us to be more adventurous. I love everything, but I'd like us to be more adventurous. And Brax takes this as, oh, I'm not good enough for you. And so she immediately, like, stuffs all that stuff down, down, down inside. And she's like, no, no, you're perfect. You're wonderful. Everything's great. Don't mind my feelings at all. And so then they have sex. And this is the first sex scene between those two. And boy, is it great for Brax. (laughs) One of the things Brax says that I think just kind of explains his relationship to Tess is, is this. He says... I'm not sure I can keep up with you. I love you, Tess. I love being with you, but I don't need to fuck you to be a man. I need you as a friend, as my support. Do you understand? Ew. Yeah. So why isn't she just his friend then? Yeah. If he wants her as a friend and support, you know, that that is a an actual type of relationship you can have with people. You lie. <laughs> you know, friends and support. Hmm. Yeah. It sounds like pure myth. I don't buy it. After her lackluster night with Brax, they decide that the next day is going to be all about what Brax wants to do, and then the following day will be all about what Tess wants to do, which sounds fine. Yeah. And Brax wants to rent a moped and, like, tool around town and see what's what, and Tess finds this terrifying. (laughs) She opts to ride on the moped behind Brax instead of on her own. And the traffic in Mexico is terrifying and everything is terrifying. (laughs) And they tool around for quite a while. I think she starts to enjoy herself a little bit. But it gets to the point where they're hot, they're tired. And Brax stops in front of this really run-down, shabby eatery. It's fine. Like, it just looks like... (laughs) (laughs) I'm starting to doubt Brax's intelligence at this point. Like, (laughs) you're in another country... A country where, if you're knowledgeable at all, you know crime is is pretty prevalent. And so you take your your sweet, lovely girlfriend to the shittiest diner you can find. And say, hey, let's stop here for a drink. Yeah. You can go off the beaten path and not necessarily find what they found. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean... I think there's there are certain cues that lead up to where you feel like things are going to be unsafe. And I must admit, I was kind of like, uh, Brax, dude, you catching any of this? Yeah. As a traveler at all, do you, do you have any spidey sense, like, at all? Fucking at all. He does not. Spoiler. <laughs> they go inside. He orders them both uh, a Coke. And they're drinking it, and Tess is just sitting there like, oh, God, I hate everything about this place. There's, like, creepy-looking dudes in there. She's watching them. She sees they're watching her. She's like, oh, no, I don't like this place. And then Brax, genius among men, (laughs) says, I'm going to go use the bathroom. I'll be right back. (laughs) And Tess is like, no, 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 please, please don't leave me. Let's go find... A different place. Yeah, no, let's exit now. You're a dude. You can pee on the side of the road. It's fine. Let's just go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had to ask my husband, like, so if we were in a really shithole 
scary looking diner in the middle of Mexico and you had to you had to pee and I was like no do not leave me alone what would you do and he's like I wouldn't take you to a shitty diner in the middle of Mexico <laughs> and I'm like exactly yeah I don't know I think you can go to like <laughs> dives and stuff uh, you know that have like a different atmosphere and it can be completely cool the thing is is once you start to feel unsafe you should leave it, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if they're chandeliers right and champagne yeah. if the person you're with says not feeling so good kind of feel tingly and not in a good way this just cements my opinion of brax in that he looks to her for comfort he doesn't expect to provide yeah, any comfort no. because if he did none of this would happen yeah which, I mean, for the story, it has to happen, but yeah, it may not happen in this way. Anyway, he goes to the bathroom. It's taking a long ass time. Tess is like starting to freak out more and more and more. She goes to check on him. The dudes are like blocking her way. She happens to see him like lying like in a pool of his own blood on the bathroom floor. And she flips <laughs> the fuck out and tries to run out the door, but... The guys grab her, and she fights. She fights she really does. hard, but is ultimately subdued and captured. So they knock her out. Understandable, but boo. Yeah. Necessary evil. So you may or may not be surprised, but these these fine gentlemen are sex traffickers and yes. have abducted her to be merchandise. This is not a pleasant experience for Tess whatsoever. <laughs> she finds herself in a room with, I think she's one of eight women. She's sadly not the only one. Yeah, they're, they're all kind of meek and subdued. And Tess is just like trying to figure out where her opening is. Like when, she, when should she fight? How could she try to escape? Which is good. She's a very proactive character. She is. She's very active. She doesn't accept her fate. No, she's quite resisty. Yes, she, she's resisty. <laughs> sure, we'll make it a word. It is thus christened. She's in this room with these other women and, you know, they feed her gruel. Yum. Or the women don't. The The kidnappers <laughs> feed her gruel. Either way, the, the yum, the sarcastic yum still stands. It's a fair. After a couple days pass, they force everyone to take a shower. And that's extremely traumatic. She does not want to be naked in front of these guys, which <laughs> I don't blame nope. her, and fights to to retain her clothing, fights to stay out of the shower, and they end up, I think this is the point where they end up beating her and she gets her rib broken, which is not fun. How nice of them. After her shower, she goes to this other room that has this really creepy... Um, kind of like a dentist slash gynecologist's office chair and they have to wrestle her into that strap her down and then this really is kind of a mind fuck for her because then a woman is the one who does the next things which she she views this woman as just a traitor and how could you how could you do this to other women and the woman doesn't say anything throughout this whole experience but gives her a pelvic oh. exam kind of, gives her a tattoo of a barcode and then injects like a microchip tracker behind her ear. And then after all that is done, 
they give her some clothes to put on and it's just like a big shirt and thigh high socks and a pair of undies and that's that's her outfit now (laughs) they take her back to the same room where she had been staying before i don't know if this happens the same night or if a few more days pass but after the fun um adventure in the chair she's sleeping when she's woken up by one of the guys who initially kidnapped her and he's like he's going to rape her and she fights him and she kicks his ass she ends up getting the better of him she hurts him in the groin she slams his nose against a wall she gets ready to run out the door and then there's a bunch of men there with guns and she's like oh okay (laughs) They take the would-be rapist away, so that's good. And she she does feel like a bit of, of I don't know, victory about having hurt him and having, you know, successfully warded him off. Some more time passes, and then she's brought to this office where she speaks with a, a white guy who tells her, oh, yeah, yeah, you've been sold. So enjoy your new life. Here you go. I don't think we ever learn his name, but he's basically like he—he's the the money behind the operation or something. I guess the boss, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. He, he doesn't need a name. It—it's honestly, it's kind of creepier that he doesn't have a name. Well, names are kind of important in the story. That's true. I mean, for lack of a better way to put it, names are power. And this is the first time she's asked for her name. That guy asks her for her name, and she refuses to mm-hmm. give it to him. The only piece of herself that she has control over. Yep. While she's in the office, after she learns she's been sold, she gets chloroformed, put to sleep. She wakes up in an airplane with a black hood over her head. She has no idea where she is or what she's doing or or, or anything. She just knows, all right, I get to meet a new terrible excuse for a human (laughs) being soon. Yay, me. She gets unloaded off the plane and they try, they take off her hood and everything. They tell her, okay, you need to get on this private jet now to go to your new owner. And this is where she makes her first escape attempt. As they're guiding her onto the jet, she veers off to the side and just hauls ass like as fast as she can go. And she's thinking to herself, like, they might shoot me, but I'd rather be dead than have more of this yeah and the guys are chasing her it feels like she's getting away but then someone else came off from a different direction and tackles her to the ground she kind of just gives up at that point and gets on the plane which makes sense even though she failed that time she's trying to tell herself you know don't give up you can you can still try you can keep trying save feistiness for later they unload her off the plane She's in front of this manor house. Since she's a student, she's an architecture student, she recognizes that it's French. And they're walking her up to the house. She goes inside. The guy behind her is like, you need to kneel. You need to bow. You need to crawl. You know, all these things. But the master of the house says she doesn't have to do anything she doesn't want to. Like, she doesn't have to kneel if she doesn't want to. She doesn't have to crawl. She's special. So then the master of the house dismisses the guard. And now she's alone with him. Uh-oh. And he says to her, you won't be able to run. And she says, who says I'm going to run? And he says, 
I smell it on you, the scent of prey. You're looking for a bolt hole, somewhere no one can find you. You're different, I'll give you that. They didn't break you, but don't think you can fight me. You won't win. And she's all pissed off and she says, <laughs> which I don't know. I kind of have to give kudos to Tess that she's able to be pissed yeah. off in this moment. <laughs> she really stands up for herself for as long as she can. But she says, what do you expect? I was smuggled here. You bought me. I didn't come freely. Of course I want to run. He's basically like, you don't get to make the rules here. You're a slave. And she says, I'm not a slave. And then he slaps her. And it's not like a hard slap, but it's like a like a disciplinary slap. Yeah, an attention getting one. Yeah. And then he says, you are mine. Through circumstances, I will not discuss with you. You have come into my possession and therefore must obey me in all things. You are not permitted to use the internet, phone, or any technology of any kind. You may not speak to the staff. You may not leave the house. Boo. And the whole time he's talking to her, she gets like the impression like, okay, he's like this tough dude. He's this scary dude. He's a bossy dude. But also he's like into it. Yeah, he does seem to revel in it. He likes the idea. Although he doesn't seem to want to like it because he he resists in his own way. Right. He's trying. I think he's trying not to like it actively, but she can still tell. He takes off one of her socks and realizes that her ankle's fucked up. He's upset that she's hurt. His property was damaged. (laughs) Yeah, that's what he says. She's like, well, why do you care? And he says, I care because I don't like damaged girls. And I won't do worse unless you deserve it. Well, thank you for that comforting (laughs) nightmarish thought. (laughs) So then he takes off her other sock and he puts a tracking bracelet around her ankle. (sighs) He shows her how, you know, now he knows where to find her all the time. She can't leave. And then he picks up this piece of paper and he says, this is all I have on you. I want to know more. And the paper is just like a list of, I don't know, facts about her as merchandise (laughs) like subject blonde girl on scooter here's the barcode age range temperament under temperament they put angry and violent (laughs) well they're not wrong (laughs) under ownership guidelines they put recommend strict punishment to break temper trim body fit enough for extreme (laughs) activities history no living relatives at that she starts flipping out over brax Like, is he dead? Because this whole time she's been in captivity, I mean, I think her mind has gone to Brax a few times, but she's kept holding out hope. Oh, he's alive. He's alive. Is he dead? Oh, no. No, he has to be alive. I would know if he was dead. Her new master asks her her name and she refuses to give it to him. And she says, I'm not going to give you my name. And he's all pissed off about that. She asks, why did you buy me? And he says, I didn't. You were a gift, an unwanted gift, a bribe. So once again, she's not wanted. Although, you know, in this case, (laughs) maybe that's okay. I forget. Do we ever learn like what she's a bribe for? Or is she just more like reimbursement? Because I felt very unsatisfied with that aspect of the story. Yeah, it doesn't go much into depth. And I think it's because... We don't have a point of view for him at all until the very, very end. But there is that scene where he talks about how he owns property and deals in property. I think it's alluded to that she was a bribe to make something go more smoothly as far as that goes. Oh, like permits or something? Possibly. 
So he asks her if she wants to know his name, and she's like, no. And so he tells her that she has to call him <laughs> Q. Let's talk a little bit about Q. Because, boys and girls, this is our hero. <laughs> In case that wasn't obvious at this point. <laughs> his name is Quincy Mercer. He goes by Q with almost everyone, I think. But he's extremely wealthy. He lives in this ginormous manor. He owns a private jet. He has a staff. I'm not sure if he's like a billionaire level, but he's very, very, very rich. And his backstory. So his parents were great. (laughs) Um, His father uh, was involved in sex trafficking and also owned 12 female slaves, like 12 sex slaves. His mother was an alcoholic and drank herself to death, literally. When Q was five years old, that's when he first started to realize what type of man his dad was, which is extremely young. Yeah. He witnesses his dad doing non-consensual, horrible things to a woman. And throughout his childhood, he sees this. Even though it's... It's technically like a secret thing. Like it's a secret part of the house. He's not supposed to go there. He's not supposed to know these things. But he's able to sneak around and he does know. And when he's 13, he sneaks into the, he calls it the stable, where the women live, the slaves live, and they are terrified of him, a 13-year-old boy. And that is what makes him decide that he's going to kill his dad and free these women. And it takes him three years to find a gun. And when he's 16 years old, he sneaks in while his dad is raping one of these women and shoots him in the head. Bye-bye. The women are understandably freaked out. (laughs) He sets them free. He gives them money, clothes, you know, whatever help he can. Most of them leave right away. One of them ends up taking his virginity, like sneaking into his room. And I don't know if... Forcing herself on him is the right word, but like seducing him at the very least, I suppose. It's kind of like a gross, I don't know. But then she leaves. But even though he's killed his dad and he's freed these women, he's also inherited (laughs) everything. He was the only child. He inherited, you know, the manner, the money, the everything, including his dad's reputation. People think that he's like his dad and they start giving him slaves as bribes. Or, you know, to be in good favor. Can't you just give a box of chocolates? And he helps these women. You know, they come in and they're broken. They've been mind fucked. Yeah. (laughs) And horrifically, physically abused. And he does the best he can to help rehabilitate them and give them money and help them move on with their lives. Which, you know... At least vaguely looks heroic-y. So, so you might be asking yourself, why doesn't he tell this to Tess? <laughs> why does he give her the whole speech about how she's his and she has to do everything he says? And here I'm putting a tracker on your ankle. Because he quickly assess the fact that she isn't like the others. Yeah, he is into the fact that she's not broken. She's <laughs> still got fire. And it burns. That night, she is forced to join him for dinner. Q says, you have two choices. 
And Tess is like, well, whatever the first two are, I'm adding a third one, which is get the fuck out of here. <laughs> but Q says, one, I rape you, hurt you, do everything you expect of me and make you live a miserable existence. Uh, no. <laughs> or tell me about yourself. And if you have a skill I need, I'll put you to work in other ways. Uh, what do you think of these choices? I'm still wondering why the fuck he hasn't told her that he's someone who helps slaves. Yeah. Why hasn't he told her the truth? He's not the only quote unquote hero or male love interest to do this. Where it's like they would rather the heroine or their love interest view them poorly than admit whatever the truth is. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's so bizarre. And I think for Q, it might be just he has like a, like the selfish desire that maybe, maybe she'll want the stuff I want. Mm. He's not ready to give up the fantasy. But for Tess, it's not a fantasy. Yeah. For Tess, she is literally his possession. She is his captive. It makes you wonder about how good he truly is. Yeah. This is a dark romance. He's a dark hero and that's fine. But it just, I'm still wondering why. Why doesn't he just reveal at least something? Maybe the choice is like his attempt at it because, you know, the second choice is tell me about yourself. Maybe I'll put you to work in some other way. That's basically what he's done with all the other women that he's helped. Yeah. He's helped find them jobs. He's helped find them a new life. So maybe that's for him, his way of saying, do you want me to treat you like I've treated every other woman who's come through here? Or do you want me to treat you like how I secretly want to treat you? Yeah. But she has no way of knowing that's what he's saying. Poor communication. Yeah. What did you think about the choice? For her, this is her reality. Yeah. In previous episodes, we've been consent, consent, consent. There's no consent option for her. Right. You know, it, it would be one thing if she was like, yes, I I sign up for this. You get that at the end, you know, where choices are made, where she does yes. consent, agree, all of that. But at this point, that hasn't happened. They're not even operating in the same reality. Yeah, that's the thing. It's not unlike, I don't... I don't know if you've ever seen this show, Downton Abbey. You know, you have the lady of the house and then you have her lady's maid, O'Brien is her name, and the lady of the house, Cora. O'Brien has disappointed Cora in some way. Cora is just flabbergasted. How dare she? And she says before she leaves, essentially, I thought we were friends and we can't be friends if you cannot conduct yourself in a certain way. Okay, but A, that's not really friendship. <laughs> right. You're an employee. I mean, I may tease you about things that you do, but at no point am I telling you Erica, you need to behave a certain way. I mean, especially <laughs> after this many years, you know. <laughs> but regardless, you don't treat friends like that. The power imbalance is real in, in those types of relationships. Exactly. O'Brien kind of makes the comment of, yeah, like we were ever friends. Because it's true. <laughs> like they're, they're not on the same footing. They're not really friends. And that's the same sort of thing here with them. And there's two issues. There's the power imbalance on one hand. And then there's the realities that they live on the other. Where one person knows that this is a game and the other person doesn't. It makes you wonder how much they're 
emotional connections can be genuine. I think you make a good point about the power imbalance with the characters where one character ultimately holds all the cards and can dramatically affect the other character's life and the other character really has no say. And has to be aware too. In theory, not only does she not have cards to play, she's not even aware of all the cards that are possible. Right, she doesn't know there are cards. Yeah. (laughs) Because she doesn't know, hey, there's an option to where I can get out of this and have a, a vague idea of a quote-unquote normal life. Which, I mean, granted, that that's not what she wants. You know, she, she wants to be a sex slave. Well... You know what I mean? She wants the power imbalance to a certain degree. Well, she wants she wants to be dominated. That's true. Okay. And she's willing to allow a great degree of control to the person dominating her as long as she knows that that person cares about her. That's her thing that she wants. Do we know if if he cares? I mean, we know that she's quote unquote different, but just because she's different doesn't mean he feels differently in a positive way. Well, at the end of the book, yeah, I think so. But at this point in the story, all we get are the clues of like him seemingly both disgusted and lustful about abusing her Mm. and let's be let's be accurate i mean it is abuse yeah in her eyes yeah for sure and if it's abuse in her eyes then it's abuse you know totally and i'm willing to grant this hero quite a bit of leeway given the um the subgenre that we're reading here i don't expect him to be perfect i expect him to be you know at least a little bit evil and i feel like this hero is kind of like lawful evil he has his own code yeah (laughs) (laughs) he has his own rules and he follows them he does but he doesn't follow society's rules necessarily no you got to take into account his background too which of course tess doesn't know at this point but how fucked up is he yeah (laughs) granted his dad didn't intend supposedly intend for him to see what he was doing but he did that leads me to like my major gripe with this book which i think this is an appropriate time to bring it up because shortly after this dinner they start getting physical and tess is simultaneously turned on and repulsed She constantly throughout this book is thinking things like, what is wrong with me? Why am I so damaged? Yeah. Why do I like this? And he, we we are given to understand via context clues that he thinks he's a monster. How am I like this? Why do I want to do this to women? You know, why is this what gets me off? When in reality, this is not a BDSM relationship. This is a fucked up abusive relationship. This is a second codependent relationship. Yeah. Tess has fallen into a relationship that is even more codependent (laughs) than her relationship with Brax, if that's even possible. And suddenly Brax looks, well, not like an appealing option because that's not right, but... (laughs) And I don't know if it was the author's intent to portray this as kink, because I think at the beginning of the book, you get the impression that that's what Tess wants. She wants kink. Yeah. She wants to be submissive. She wants to be dominated. She wants to be ravished. And yay, good for her. And she she's willing to take it far. Like she she has this fantasy at the beginning of the book of Brax basically kidnapping her and bringing her on a plane, which is foreshadowing for what actually happened to her later after she was kidnapped. In her fantasy, it was sexy. But the whole reason it was sexy was because she was into it. She knew that the person doing it was someone that supposedly cares about her. Yeah. 
She consented to it. Yeah. In theory. Even if it's a implied consent more. It's consensual non-consent. And it's like, you know, a part of kink where you play that you're not consenting. But we all know that you are. Well, yeah, it's discussed ahead of time. <laughs> and and I know some people can get pretty um, involved with it, too, where they like plan out scenes and then like, surprise, we're doing that scene that we talked about and you consented to like a month ago. So consenting, yes thumbs up okay good yeah but at any point that person could say you know their safe word or whatever yeah they need to do and they are withdrawing their consent at that point like that's a point where they pause and check in with each other and see what's going on and potentially stop yeah depending on what word or what the agreement is yeah yeah and so that's kind of like a, a gripe with this book for me because i don't know it's not clear what the author's intent is is this meant to be BDSM or is this meant to be just twisted? And if it's just meant to be twisted, that's fine. I will take it and, and enjoy it. I'm fine with having an evil hero. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind, you know, as long as I know before I start reading, that's what I'm getting. <laughs> yeah. And we've discussed that before. It's best if it's clear to the reader what sort of journey this is going to be. So that, that right. they can either enjoy or not, depending on their preferences. I mean, we, we embarked on this journey consensually. <laughs> we decided we were going to read a dark romance and we picked out this book. We did. We, we read through several options. <laughs> yeah. And selected this one. But, I mean, regardless of the author's intent, there is that weird blurry line there between BDSM and just being twisted and dark. Yeah. And I think that this book falls on the twisted and dark side, not the BDSM side, which, again, is, is totally okay. This yes. is fiction. But I wish we'd had, I think at this point in the story, it would have been nice to have had a little bit more of a clue of how intense Tess was mm. about what she wanted out of sex. Now, granted, she may not even know because she only had the one relationship thus far with Brax and he was her first everything. But it's not believable to me, I guess. That's, I guess that's the problem at mm. this point. That she's turned on. And yeah, your body can get turned on without your mind getting turned on. And that's yeah. a thing. But it's not even that for Tess. Yeah, her body's turned on, but her mind is in two different places at once. Do you think your reaction to the scene would have been different if maybe Q had picked up on her self-loathing or whatever it is and tried to reassure or support her rather than sort of stay more involved in his own headspace with the I'm a horrible beast of of a human being doing this to her and enjoying doing this to her that's an interesting question because I think Q is pretty perceptive because he can tell like he sees himself in her yeah. and we learn in the story that you know he's not making that up she is similar yeah. to him in a lot of ways she's like the mirror image of him but he doesn't seem to see the self-loathing that she has and i think that you're right i think that may have helped i think that would have helped me to get to the the romance part at the end where it's like okay now i believe this relationship a little bit better because it does just feel like she's just continually taking abuse and by virtue of the pen dictating all 
<laughs> she's fine with it. It's okay. I mean, she dislikes herself, but she's into it, so it's fine. Yeah, I think if he had said something along the lines of praising her. Yeah. Maybe that would have been better. Like, in the midst of her, like, I'm a horrible, damaged, depraved person. I deserve this because I thought these thoughts about Brax. And then he's, you know, telling her that she's she's good. She's doing a good job. Yeah, some sort of supportive words or encouragement or something. I think that praising, it would have helped me feel better. Yeah. <laughs> it would have helped me believe. I think that's where sometimes, like, this couple didn't feel like a couple. Like, me rooting for them and whatever anybody's into, whatever a character's into, that's fine. It's just, you want to feel that... I want to feel like he's good for her. Well, that they're good for each other. Right. Yeah, they're fucked up, but they're perfect for each other. I feel like that's the romance equivalent of, like, in a murder mystery, like, you got the killer. Or in yeah. adventure books, oh, there's the holy grail. Like I say, after this dinner, it gets physical. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail because I think it might make people uncomfortable. But some of it is hot. Some of it is... Not. <laughs> not. <laughs> Q is very, very big on getting Tess to say that she belongs to him. He gets off on that. He even, I think that first night, he tells her that if she says that she belongs to him, then he won't rape her that night. Ugh. And so she does. She caves and she's like, I'm yours. <laughs> <laughs> There's this language throughout a lot of the physical scenes where Tess thinks about how her body is betraying her. And I kind of wanted to to talk about that a little bit. What do you think about the idea of a body betraying you? Part of it, I think, is Tess not acknowledging what she responds to. But just because you respond to something doesn't mean you like it. <laughs> Or you feel good about it. Yeah, it rides this line, I think, in this book of having your body react against your will versus her wanting her body to react against her will. A body's consent to something is different from the person consenting to something. And so I think that's what Tess has got to work out. What do you think? I have to admit that I got frustrated with a lot of Tess's self-loathing. I think because she was so heroic during the whole kidnapping parts. Yeah. And so tough and so strong and fought off a fucking rapist. Ran, preferring to get shot at than captured again. Yeah. She's a fucking badass, right? Agreed. And then she's in the situation that she keeps changing her mind. She thinks, oh, he's maybe he's fine. You know, maybe he's. He, he's not the type to buy a slave. He just has one because someone <laughs> gave me to or whatever. And for some reason, he has to keep me. Like, I don't get that at all, but whatever. She's She tries to rationalize it. And minimize. Sometimes. Sometimes she's all about, like, I'm going to destroy everything and kill everyone and run away. And sometimes she's somewhere else. And I think that this whole body betrayal thing is part of that in a physical way. And not to minimize, you know, what could happen in real life how someone's body can act in a way that you do not mm -hmm. want yeah <laughs> but i think for her it's very much tapping into that the kink she has yeah and she's stuck with no this is wrong this is bad or oh but i like this i want this I think in the context of this book, I could have used a little bit more I like this yeah. at this point in her head. 
And maybe instead of like, oh, my body betrays me, I'm such a worthless, damaged, broken thing, she could be thinking like, wow, he controls me. He controls my body. And there are parts in the book where she's kind of like that, where she's like, oh, now he has my sense of sight. Now he has my sense of taste. Yeah, that could be liberating for her rather than adding to her shame. Yes, again, in the context of Of this book. All right, let's move on. There's a point in the book where Suzette gives Tess advice. Do you remember this part? Yes. (laughs) Why? Why is this a thing? (laughs) Where one of the women tells the other woman, make him happy sexually and he will do what you want. I think you and I have given each other lots of advice over the years. We've never given that advice to one another. Oh, just make the person happy. Whatever it is. Just just play nice if anything we give each other the opposite advice i just don't get it like why it it kind of like in this book it parallels uh tessa's encounter with the woman sex trafficker where she's like you're betraying Mm -hmm. your sex you're betraying other women and it kind of feels that way with Suzette like Suzette is just like no he is a kind good person and you just don't know any better and you should Mm. just give him what he wants and then you'll learn his story and you'll learn why he deserves it which is not the right order of things no it is not Again, I'm left wondering, because we have little hints throughout the story, but we don't know, like, the full extent of Q's story till the very end. But it's like, why doesn't he tell her any of this? There are choices he makes in this story that I just do not understand. Like the dinner party, for example. Oh, yeah. Where he dresses her up in, like, this mesh Mm -hmm. gown and ties her to the ceiling basically so she's suspended on her toes by her wrists as decor i guess and has several other men join him for dinner where they're talking and it seems almost like a businessy thing and these men are like leering at her one of the men who appears to be friendly with q pinches her nipple yeah and then the russian dude who's the one who gifted test to him in the first place Mm. uses the the hilt of his knife or the handle of his knife to violate her ew and she can tell that he's going to do this to her and she starts trying to draw q's attention and q purposefully ignores her but then after that happens and she starts screaming because it fucking hurts he shoots the russian it just doesn't make any sense with what we know about q Why did any of that happen? I don't know. I mean, I get the minimizing thing, like the bad advice from Suzette and Tess downplaying, because I think female characters often do this, especially, especially if they're supposed to fall in love with love interests who behave badly like this. There has to be this forgiving heart sort of thing. Or it, it's not that bad. Yeah. Or she liked it. Him allowing that to happen and then doing that after and then shooting him. I think at that time she was already starting to think of herself as being cues. It's like you have a pet dog and you take your pet to visit your friends and one of your friends gets mad because the dog did something they didn't like not not anything bad but something they didn't like 
and they hit the dog. It is your fault as the dog owner that that happened, that your dog was in that situation. And that's this situation. Tess had zero control. The shit that happened to her at that dinner party was all on cue. And yeah, he shot the dude, but he also let it happen. Yeah. And I just don't get that whole scene at all. Because when he initially hangs her up, he's like, oh, this is a first for me. And initially I thought, oh, maybe it's like a kink party or something. And he's never had somebody. Yeah, I was sort of thinking like the Russian had something on cue. The Russian was doing that to show his higher status. Because Q was impotent in some way. I think the Russian was trying to act that way, yes, but I don't think the Russian actually had anything. No, but that was, I think that was me just trying to understand the scene. Because otherwise, it's like, okay, so Q is just being like, mistreat her, it's fine. Like, abuse her literally right in front of me, it's fine. Then being like, oh no, wait, I'm supposed to be the hero boom i I forgot i was cast as the hero in this book and that's okay so here's here's the thing i think if you put this in the context of bdsm which again i don't think this book is but if you do then you know of course there would be consent but potentially you could have a partner in that situation where you hang them up and they're you know whatever in their decor and other people are allowed to touch them or whatever but they would also know the rules yes And if one of them didn't follow the rules, then that would be a big fucking deal. Yes. But it's also the dominant's job in that context to ensure that everyone follows the rules. You're not wrong. (laughs) You know, because the submissive has put their trust (laughs) into the dominant's ability to protect them. Totally. But I mean, that's the thing is Tess doesn't actually put her trust in Q. No, that's it's this whole situation like perverted i guess and and you have like this kinky-esque atmosphere yeah but but i do feel and and this is me as the reader i suppose but i do feel like it is q's responsibility to make sure everyone follows the rules and it's clear that the rules do not include you know violating tess with a knife handle because he shoots the guy after that but the rules do include things like pinches. Or the rules did include it, because we don't get a copy of the rules. But Q decided, right. never mind. <laughs> I take that one back. Honestly, the only way I can reconcile this whole scene is Q was trying to not show vulnerability. No, that makes sense. Prior to the dinner party, there's a different scene where Tess is getting punished for having destroyed the expensive wardrobe Q bought her. At some point, she like becomes apathetic and just like, okay, yeah, I don't care anymore. (laughs) Whatever. I am a vessel. And Q hates it. Yeah. He's like, do not switch off on me. You promised me you weren't broken. We're starting to get clues that Q wants to be able to have a fulfilling sex life Mm -hmm. on his terms with someone who wants the same things and will not be victimized by those things and that's what he's hoping to find with Tess because when she came to him she was not a victim she was a fighter at least in his eyes after the dinner party Tess makes escape attempt number two there's a point during the day where Suzette has Franco who is their guard drive her to the village Tess sneaks 
into the car and hides in the car while they're getting ready to go. And once they're there, once they're at the village, both um, Suzette and Franco go off and do their stuff and Tess sneaks out of the car and starts running. She runs into one of the businesses and she wants to use the phone to call the police and she's like screaming like, Hugh Mercer kidnapped me and I'm his captive and I'm trying to escape and I need to call the police and no one believes her. Like they're <laughs> like, no, that's crazy. And she, I think she has to go into a different, <laughs> a different business, but she ends up getting on a phone. The first person she calls is Brax. <laughs> Good old Brax. Gets his voicemail and she leaves him this panicked voicemail where she's basically saying the same thing. I'm somewhere in France. Q Mercer has me. Help. I've been kidnapped. And then she wants to call the police, but they take the phone away from her because they overheard her what she was saying and they got mad. So they're like, no, he's not like that. (laughs) And so she runs out into the street and she stops a guy who's driving and is like, can you drive me to the police? I've been kidnapped. I need to be rescued. And he's like, yes, I will take you to the police. And so she tells him again who had kidnapped her and all this. And he's like, "Okay." And she ends up falling asleep in the car. Yeah, I kind of wonder if he drugged her or something, because that just, it went from like, quote unquote, day to night real quick, too. Yeah, it was so bizarre, because she asks him if he has something sharp to cut off her tracking device, and he gives her a knife, and she cuts off her ankle thing. But then she doesn't drop it out the car window or anything, she just lets it stay (laughs) in the car. And then she goes to sleep. It's like, wow, Tess, you're really trusting Mm -hmm. with this guy. Agreed. Which she shouldn't have been, because when she wakes up, she's in the middle of BFing nowhere. She has no idea where she is. And she's like, this isn't the police station. He's all, no, it's not. (laughs) When I heard who you belong to, I knew that, you know, we could take revenge. Because apparently his family used to profit from or use or borrow or something. The sex slaves that Q's dad had. Like, I don't know if he gave them them or if he lent them to them or what the situation was. But they're pissed because Q doesn't do any of that. (laughs) It's the driver guy that she calls driver and then the other guy that she calls brute. They're very nasty and... And horrible and we're gonna take what we want from you as revenge against Q. Gross. She's held down and Brute begins to rape her and then all of a sudden Q shows up and shoots Brute and Driver and rescues her because she didn't get rid of the tracking device. You know? Stalker tendencies came in <laughs> handy in this book. <laughs> this is a big moment for Tess because this is the moment where she changes her mind about him. He goes from being a monster, kidnapper, horrible person to the guy who would kill for her. And she compares this to Brax and she finds Q more favorable. Poor Brax. What did Brax ever do for her? <laughs> Didn't get her off. Which in romance is like... Didn't protect her in... In romance terms, that's like enemy number one. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> You gotta get your lady off. Pubic enemy number one. Is that terrible? (laughs) I'm too tired to be able to tell if that's terrible or not. You know what's funny too is like Q is this, you know, he owns her. He's the slave master, blah, blah. But he's like going down on her all the time. Even when he has a woman (laughs) in the position where she can't say no, he wants to get her off. (laughs) But that's like the quintessential hero, right? Pretty common. Hugh brings her back 
to his home and takes care of her. He ends up taking a shower with her. He's dressed. She's not. He's washing her. She's kind of wondering, like, is he just fixing a broken toy or does he actually care about me? I don't know. I was kind of wondering that, too. Really not sure. (laughs) You're right there with Tess. I mean, the thing is, is like romance novel. So (laughs) you assume certain things. But sometimes (laughs) the text isn't as clear. But you start to feel like Tess is starting to understand Q, too, after this point. Like, she's starting to understand that he doesn't want her to not want it, but he wants her to act like she doesn't want it, even though he does not communicate this to her at all. She starts playing that role for him because she's a people pleaser and she wants to be accepted. Wonderful, but she's so accommodating. And she wants to be cared about. If you care about others, of course they're going to care about you. It's guaranteed. And they they almost fall into this, it's almost comfortable. It's not comfortable because he still kind of plays like the mind games, but it's more comfortable because she's starting to realize that they're mind games. Yeah. Yay. And it's not consensual because she's his slave, but it's not not consensual because she wants to do it. (laughs) I don't know. It's iffy. It is. It's less (laughs) icky, more iffy improvement. It's a gray area. But she's kind of at the point where she wants to stay. She wants to be with him. She likes what she's getting from him. She sees him as the only person who actually cares about her enough to go after her and find her and kill for her. And she's into it. But around that time, the police show up. Turns out Brax got her message, started a a hunt, and the police came by to see what was going on. How nice of them to be inquisitive. Something that was interesting about this is that Q's staff, like Suzette and, and Franco, are like disappointed in Tess. It's like they all expect her to know what's really going on when no one has told her what's really going on. They have no right to feel disappointed no. in her. While the police are there, Tess goes to tell them, no, no, he didn't kidnap me. I want to be here. And they're like, oh, okay, well, we have to talk to him alone. And then they're sitting there drinking. It's almost like a friendly get together than, you know, a police investigation. Tess is a little weirded out by it, but she leaves. And then later that night, Q shows up and he's drunk which he'd never been drunk before, I don't think, in the story. He starts truth-telling. Apparently, he's a truthful, forthcoming drunk. Dangerous drunk to be. It kind of allows Tess to feel some more intimacy with him, to kind of understand a little bit more, like, who he is inside. Because he's kept himself, for the majority of the time, anyway, He's he's got this wall. Yeah, it's definitely Belle seeing the man within the beast. Yeah, this story is very much beauty and the beast isn't it it is quite a few romances are it seems yeah i've noticed that too (laughs) (laughs) after they they talk and stuff and and she gets some more info out of him and she's feeling like close to him and he asks her if he can have one night with her where he's able to do whatever he wants and go as far as he wants and she agrees because she's she's decided, you know, she's learned that this is a role that he wants her to play. She feels like he does care about her. So this is something she's willing to do. Now, granted, she is a slave still, so she doesn't technically have a choice. This is something that, you know, at least <laughs> vaguely resembles consent. So, yay. And, and he does give her a safe word. Yes. <laughs> she's earned a safe word. How lovely. <laughs> 
sorry. <sighs> the snark cannot be contained. I think this is the closest we've come to consent in this book. <laughs> yeah. Honestly. Yeah. They have like a full on like kinky BDSM sort of scene and he marks her up. So she gets like whipped and flogged and all these things. She's into it. He's into it. They have sex. It's amazing. But then the next day, she learns that Q is sending her home. Yeah. It was a goodbye fucking. Basically, yeah. It's like Q, in his mind, he's letting himself have a taste before he sends her off to have a good life or whatever. I think that's what it was for him. Oh, like, yeah. Totally was. But for her, it was a, like, her opening up and letting herself, like, be with him versus be attacked by him. Yeah. You know? And they've had, I mean, they've had sex prior to this, you know, other sexual encounters, and, and she enjoyed them. I think this this is the turn this was the turning point for Tess. Yeah. Where she felt like she had a say in this relationship, sort of. Yeah, well they had sort of like a mutual understanding before the mutual fucking. You know what I mean? Like they both knew what page they were on and there wasn't so much the self-loathing, no support situation, you know, where they could feel like crap about it. Oh, the other important thing is that through this encounter with the police, they learn each other's full names. So up until this point, he's only been Q Mercer. She didn't know his full name was Quincy. He didn't know her name was Tess Snow. But then when they do have vaguely consensual sex, having this it. She asks him to use her name during the encounter. She wants her name to be a part of it at that point. That's important. They're not playing. I mean, that's the thing is they're more themselves, I think. One of the things that Tess learned during Q's drunken confessional time. Yes, his drunken (laughs) truthiness. (laughs) Yes, she learned that she's number 58 of the slaves that he's had. And she's not sure exactly what to do with that number. And she's kind of viewing this, oh, I'm getting sent home now thing as oh he's ready to move on to number 59 franco is the one in charge of taking her to the airport or to the plane i guess because <laughs> he has a private jet let's not forget of course as one does franco has made sure tess gets all the way back to australia they go through customs he's ready to just like push her onto australian soil and go okay bye bye now mm-hmm. <laughs> he gives her an envelope which she just puts in her pocket She turns to him and says, take me back. I don't belong here anymore. And Franco says, I can't take you back. The French police will know. And that was the deal. Mr. Mercer has a longstanding arrangement with the authorities. And Tess says, what longstanding arrangement? And Franco doesn't want to tell her at first, but she's like, I'm no longer a slave. Tell me. And he says, if you listened and paid attention, Mr. Mercer isn't in the game of keeping slaves. And Tess is like, yeah, no no shit (laughs) like i know that and she suspects that he helped them but she doesn't know for sure and franco says yes mr mercer has had 57 slaves 12 of those were when he was 16 he buys women accepts them as bribes but never lays a finger on them q rehabilitates broken women and returns them to their loved ones he dedicates his money staff and home to helping women who've been shattered beyond repair with some sort of mercer superglue he manages to put them back together and this is like that moment where all the pieces fall into place for her and she's like oh that's what all this stuff is 
She asks Franco, why me when he didn't touch anyone else? Why did he try to break me if he fixes broken things? And Franco says, for the first time, Q responded to a slave the way a normal master would. He saw your fight and loved you weren't broken. He wasn't trying to break you by doing what he did. He was hoping you could break him. Q deals with a lot. I hoped he finally found the one person who could help him, but then you ran and it's come to an end. So they're letting her think the whole reason that she's getting sent home. This is so Q won't get in trouble with the police. Mm -hmm. At this point, she now has most of the truth, I would say. Yeah. Like a good portion of it. She just doesn't know why, like the real reason why she's sent home. After this conversation with Franco, she kind of just accepts, okay, well, I guess I'll go back to my life now. (laughs) And she goes back to her apartment that she shares with Brax. And she finds the spare key that they have hidden. And she just lets herself in. (laughs) And when she comes in, she has like this kind of just like this mind fuck sort of moment. Like, how can I even be here right now? Yeah. I mean, it's been a a time. (laughs) And then the dog greets her and she's trying to calm him down. And then Brax comes in and he was woken up and she has yet another one of those moments. This isn't who I want to be with. This isn't the guy for me. This is old Tess. Brax comes toward her and says, is this real? (laughs) You know, and then they hug and kiss and, and all that. And she starts crying because she's crying for her past, right? Yeah. She's just, well, it's been an emotional journey for her. She's probably crying for a shit ton of reasons. Not all of them. She can probably articulate in that moment. This is the life she used to have. She decides too, while she's sobbing, she decides she's going to lock away all the stuff she's learned about herself and pretend to be the the person she used to be which is just the the right takeaway from that (laughs) brax questions her he's like what happened to you do you need to go to the hospital no i'm fine let's just go to bed (laughs) and brax is like we'll find you help it'll be okay they go to sleep she has a dream about q and she wakes up Brax is like touching her and he says you're panting and woke me up you sounded like you were in pain and then you started fingering yourself and moaning (laughs) not pain dear I tried to stop you but you forced my finger inside and well you woke up she says she's sorry but then they have sex you know he's he's very sweet he asks her he's like is this too soon I can stop I just I want this but if it's too soon and she's like no no it's fine like i want it too and so they have sex and they have sex but it is not the sex yeah the whole time she's thinking about like what's wrong with me why can't i enjoy this this part is rather telling i felt i churned with black thoughts sighing in relief when brax came shuddering and thrusting hard my body never rose past a gentle burn an orgasm was an impossibility yep but then he sees her fully naked because again let's remember brax is a missionary in the dark with the sheets up type of dude and he sees that she's covered in stripes i guess she's marked and Tess thinks to herself, <laughs> if Q knew, like, did he know he was sending me back like this and my old lover would see this? Like, did he do this on purpose? 
And so she's laughing and that freaks Brax out. Like, why the fuck are you laughing over this? What's happened to you? Do you need counseling? Do you need help? And Tessa's like, no, I'll be fine. And then Brax starts like dumping all his guilt on her. Like, I'm so sorry this happened. I'm so sorry I wasn't able to stop them. It's all my fault. And then she's like, no, no, it's okay. No one would have been able to stop them. Forgive yourself. And she's just willing to totally rug sweep everything. Do you think she's doing that for her benefit or for his? Or because she legit doesn't care because it's not important to her. I think that when she is with Brax, the pattern of behavior that she's had this whole time where she's in the caretaker role is what resurfaces. And I think that when she gets back to being with Brax again, it's just a role that she's always played. It's a shoe that fits and it's just her same defense mechanism of I want to make sure he wants me. I want to make sure I'm okay. I want to be wanted. I want to be worthy. I don't want him to reject me. Yeah, I think it's that. I think it's a defense mechanism, but she's had it in place her whole relationship with Brax. And that part of her hasn't changed. When she gets back there, again, got to take care of Brax. Got to make sure he's fine. Got to manage his feelings. Meanwhile, her feelings, like she's never shared her feelings with anyone ever. No. I don't think she has any idea of what that would be like. She probably doesn't. They talk a little bit about what happened, but she doesn't really give him a whole lot. And, you know, they reconnect, sort of. (laughs) (laughs) After she was home for two weeks, she calls her parents. And when Brax told them what happened, they cremated an old stuffed unicorn of hers and then scattered it in the back garden, believing she was dead. After she talks to them, she just doesn't call them anymore. Because why would you? (laughs) Her parents are confusing. I just don't like they don't want to see her. Yeah, no, like I I don't get them. (laughs) No, they don't feel real, do they? They don't. We know they're older maybe dementia has set in it's just they're so confusing and confounding it makes me wonder timeline wise did the 60s just hit real hard (laughs) i don't i don't understand are they part of a cult their behaviors are baffling to me well that's the thing i mean they can't be much older than you know in their 60s at least the mother but tess says Like, in her thoughts after she has this conversation, in their old foggy minds, my reincarnation was a messy ordeal, not a happy second chance. Yeah. So Tess thinks of them as old, but we don't really know how old they are. But I mean, even if we give, like, a benefit of the doubt and the mother had Tess, like, when she's, like, 46 or something, she's still in her 60s. Unless her origin story is a lie. (laughs) In some ways, that might make a lot of sense. (laughs) (laughs) maybe where would she have come from i don't know i guess it depends on the extent of the lie that we're making up right now i mean you could go from everything from you know adoption to another planet another dimension another i mean (laughs) how weird do you want it to get (laughs) there are options (laughs) it has to be in the realm of the reality of this story i would say well i guess since we're not going into any sort of extreme fantasy then yeah adoption they have maybe adoption regret i just don't i don't get it who treats their kid like that i just i don't know i don't know (laughs) crappy parents A month passes and over the course of this month, Tess frequently has sexy dreams about Q. She starts listening to music that reminds her of Q. And she's just trying to deal with pretending to be the old Tess 
around Brax to make sure that he's okay. She passes her final exams for university. Things are are going on, but she starts noticing that Brax is a little different. And one day... He grows a tail. (laughs) She sneaks out after him as he's taking out the garbage and sees his tail. No. (laughs) She does not. Darn. He turns into his dog and no. That would make Brax a lot more interesting. I'm sorry, Brax is like the most annoying, boring character ever, which I think the author did on purpose and they did a good job. Oh, yeah, because he, he, if he had any kind of interest to him, then it would make it more difficult for the reader to root for Q. Yeah, no. <laughs> anyway, so Brax goes out to take out the trash. Tess follows him sneakily and notices that he's chatting with the neighbor across the hall and they look like they like each other like they're into each other and then she realizes maybe he had been like starting to move on and then i came back and fucked that up and they never discussed it and pretended nothing had happened and yeah and she doesn't feel jealous she doesn't feel angry she doesn't feel anything she just it's like she almost feels relieved yeah like oh good i don't have to take care of him anymore (laughs) someone else can do that he doesn't need me (laughs) after she thinks about like how she's feeling about all this the thoughts come to her brain happiness freedom brax didn't need me i'm free someone else can take him (laughs) for walks and clean up after him (laughs) for the first time in my life i was mine completely alone no one had a right to me no one owned or claimed me blazing joy blew away my mediocrity my need for people to care i cared for me And so the very next day she breaks up with him. So as she's packing, she's like packing her clothes and she finds the envelope and she opens it and realizes that Hugh had given back her bracelet, written her a check for, I think, 200,000 euros that has just been sitting there (laughs) languishing for like over a month now. She decides she's going to go back to Q. That's what she wants to do. And she puts the bracelet on the bed and she's writing this note to Brax you know, saying goodbye and Brax catches her and he's just like, you were just going to go? What about what I want? Dude. And she says, I am giving you what you want. We've outgrown each other. I never wanted to hurt you. And by staying, I will. And he says, no, I need you. And she says, I think another needs you more. I've seen you interacting with the neighbor. I know you have feelings for her. Turns out the neighbor (laughs) lost her family in a house fire. Tragedy abound. (laughs) So she's perfect for Brax. (laughs) Brax asks her if she's going back to France and says I've seen how different you are something happened over there and it changed you and she's like I'm sorry but they break up it's a friendly breakup such a mellow breakup he doesn't get all that emotionally wrecked when she's gone well we don't know there's they're totally emotionally either unavailable or uninterested in each other it's hard to it's hard to picture because he talks about like how they put out a search for you and i was like beating myself up over the day and blah 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 but then after she shows back up he's like oh good you're here now things can go back to normal I don't know. You're right. It's hard to understand. Yeah, I was kind of like, wow, this feels kind of uneventful. Of course, Tess, too. Like, I think if she had been more needy or like if she had come to him and needed stuff, I think I think it would have been more emotional. But she came and assured him everything was fine. Yeah. So I think that's part of it, too, is she's trying to smooth everything over for him. 
but he lets her. So I'm going to butcher this name. Butcher away. But she takes a train to Blois? Oh, no. <laughs> I don't know. Blois. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. She takes a train to the small town. There we go. Where Q is. <laughs> she goes inside the same place that she had gone when she was trying to escape that time. And says so she's looking for the Mercer's estate. And the person working there is like, no, last time you were here, you claimed he kidnapped you. And now you want to go back? And she's like, uh-huh, I do. Just call me glutton for punishment. <laughs> but the lady gets someone to drive her out there. When she gets there, she sees Suzette at the door. They have a, I guess it's a happy reunion. Like, she's like, why are you back? I don't, I don't understand why you're back. But she's happy. Tess says to Suzette, he opened my cage and allowed me to fly. I can't help it if my freedom is here. And Suzette answers, you figured him out. <laughs> you cracked the code. Why the fuck did she have to figure him out? Because it was all a game. Don't ask me. Ugh. I'm the wrong person to ask. I have only wrong Dude. answers. <laughs> when she goes inside, she runs into <laughs> Slave 59, God. who is completely different <laughs> yeah. from how Tess is. This poor woman is just terrified of everything and is just pathetic and sad and falling to her knees and bowing. Yeah, and probably how Suzette was when she first arrived. Probably how most of them are. Yeah, I think so. Q comes down and he's like, why are you here? And Tess is like, I came for you on my own accord. And so Q sends Safina, that's Slave 59, off to go find Suzette. And he says, remember, you're free to do whatever pleases you. Why the fuck didn't he say that to Tess? (laughs) I think he used Tess to deal with his own (laughs) issues. That's why. This experience that Safina is having is completely <laughs> different. I mean, granted, she's in a much different place emotionally than Tess was, but Tess was still fucked up over yes. her experience. With those ladies, he gets to be Mr. Benevolence, right? But deep down, he doesn't want to be Mr. Benevolence. He's got yeah. his own issues. And because the story is told from Tessa's point of view, we don't necessarily really get clarity in a lot of that. It wouldn't surprise me if Q, in seeing, was it, well, not including Tess, 58 women who have been mistreated to the point where they're behaving this way they're trying to survive any way they can that he has anger that he doesn't know what to do with anger directed hopefully at the system that produces and encourages these female characters to become this way so he could have anger towards that system like i said he could have anger towards the women and he doesn't know what to do with it why don't you fight back why don't you not allow this to happen to yourself so to speak victim blaming basically but anger nonetheless yeah tess is a vessel for lack of a better way to put it a tussle a tussle (laughs) awesome that allows him to to deal with that you could say tess is willing to play the game he wants he needs to play yeah because he the only way he can feel satisfied like sexually satisfied is through you know dominance and sadism and she is 
the inverse of that. She wants to be submissive and she's willing to take the pain. I don't know that she's masochistic, but she's willing. Well, they're well suited in that. They are each other's puzzle pieces, but they're of a similar color scheme, so to speak, on the board. Tess tells Q that they need to talk. Q doesn't want to talk. He's like, I sent you away. Why are you back? (laughs) Stop. You're messing with my game with my plan i had you in a (laughs) compartment and you didn't stay there tess says my name is tess snow not sweetie or tessie or honey i'm a woman only now realizing what she's capable of i'm no one's daughter i'm no one's girlfriend i'm no one's possession i belong to me and for the first time i know how powerful that is i came back for the man i see inside the monster the man who thinks he's a monster because of his twisted desires The man who rescues slaves and sends them back to loved ones. I came back for Q. I came back to be his slave, but also to be his equal. And then she says that I'm offering you my pain, my blood, my pleasure. And she goes on and on. And she says, I'm willing to be your monster, Q. (laughs) She the monster, though. Okay, so then she tells him how, how much she missed him while she was gone. Like how she had the dreams about him and all this stuff. She ended up getting her tattoo altered to um, remove the center of the barcode and put in a little bird that matches the tattoos Mm -hmm. he has and put the number 58 under it. (laughs) This is a mind fuck for him. He says, you're insane. I warped your mind after everything I did, everything you went through because I kept you. How can you speak such lies? And she says, I'm strong enough to fight you. I want to give you everything, but only if you give me what I want in return. And they go back and forth. You know, Q's like, I can't give you what you need. And she's like, yes, you can. If I wanted something else, I would have stayed with Brax. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, she says, listen to me. I'm willing to give you a slave who will never break if you give me what I want in return. So she's finally like laying it out there, girl. Yes. Good for her. And he says, what... What do you need in return? And she says, I need you to care for me. Promise you'll share your life and not shut me out. I want to know who Quincy is. I want to belong to Q. I want you to be honest with yourself that I mean something to you too. Do you have that in you to care for me completely so I can give you what you need? And then he says, you're asking for an impossibility. You're asking me to love you. Hmm. He goes into the whole turmoil. I don't know if I even (laughs) know how to love. And she asks him, did it hurt you when you sent me away? And he says it did. And he tells her how crappy life has been for him after she left, how much he wanted her and how much that scared him because he didn't want to hurt her. Like he wanted to hurt her, but he didn't want to hurt her. (laughs) (laughs) They reach an understanding where he agrees he's going to keep her and also care for her. And that's and that's what she wants. And then she says, you're going to keep me in spite of the police. And then he's like, oh, there was no deal with the police it was fine (laughs) he said he says (laughs) there was no deal with the police they congratulated me on saving such a strong slave (laughs) (laughs) because it turns out the police know what he does Oh, good lord (laughs) they were all secretly rooting for him to be with her too what are they cameras (laughs) yeah i guess dude so they have they have you know, passionate, rough sex and, you know, agree. He's going to treat her like a slave, but also 
like an equal. Yay! And then after they reach this understanding, we get an epilogue from Q's point of view where we learn he tells us about his backstory and about his impressions of Tess and everything. And then we learn that they're planning to go out and get revenge for what happened to Tess. This is actually the first in a trilogy and the second two books follow the same couple as they continue their story. Yeah. So that's kind of fun. A little bit different for um, a romance book. It is. For a romance series. And that's the end. Elvin. <laughs> How was the audiobook this uh, time? I enjoyed the audiobook. It had a duet narration, which I thought was really interesting. I think it worked really well during certain parts that were really either tense or creepy to make them more so. Yeah, I could see that. So I'm not sure how they achieved this, but they had really good chemistry. The The voice actors, Hannibal and Jacob Morgan, they bounced off each other very well, especially since it was told from Tessa's point of view. I think it also contributed to the success of the narration. Yeah, I really liked it. So tell me more about the duet narration. So does that mean that most of it was from the female narrator and Q spoke his lines? Yeah, basically. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. I I could see how that would really work for this story because there's a lot going on in Tess's head. Yeah, I'm not sure how necessarily it would work in other stories it's so tricky i think with with romance because they often do two narrators and sometimes i just i just don't think that's necessary (laughs) even if a story is told from a male point of view character it's like they have to find a male voice actor or narrator and i don't know if that's Mm -hmm. necessarily always necessary i'm using necessary a lot (laughs) i apologize (laughs) I can understand why they do it. I don't think they have to. Okay. What about you? What do you think? I've actually never listened to a romance on audiobook. (laughs) Confession time. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think we're drunk enough for this. So I don't have... (laughs) I don't have direct experience, but it seems to me, like from a writing standpoint... You should only write what you need to write. I would think so. Correct? From a movie standpoint, you should only show what you need to show. So it seems like that would translate over. Like you only present what you need to present as far as narration. So if it makes sense for the experience, like it sounds like it does for this book, where um, having Q speak his lines but Tess do pretty much everything else... It lends to his mysteriousness, I would say, probably. And like you said, creepiness at parts and things like that. In other books, I don't know that that having multiple narrators, what purpose does it serve? If it's serving a purpose, then yes. But if it's not, then why? Yeah, I think it depends on on how the story is written. Because especially in audio form, if you do it more like a play, I can understand why having multiple narrators would benefit the story. The narrator, Cannabelle, she she did like all the female parts, whereas Jacob Morgan did all the male parts. So he was also Brax and that worked out really well. I I like that idea, honestly. Yeah, it, like I said, for this one, it worked really well. I don't know if sometimes it wouldn't even be better to have three narrators. Maybe that's, I mean, that would be almost a bit much for every romance novel. But to have one narrator do the exposition, so to speak, you know, the narrative bits, the narration, and then have... <laughs> one narrator narrate. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I know, I know, 
that sounds. And then have two narrators do the characters. I don't know. But then that that to me seems overkill. Honestly, it's almost better most of the time just to have one narrator throughout the whole story than necessarily have a female narrator read the chapters labeled the female character and the male narrator read the male character's chapters. I think you might have some some complaints from some (laughs) listeners because I know even though I haven't listened to any myself that some people really enjoy hearing the male voice reading the male parts. I know I'm not saying it's sometimes (laughs) just for consistency. You know they listen to it for other types of enjoyment (laughs) maybe I don't know. I understand what you're saying. Which good (laughs) no judgment here but yeah, I think I think that that's possibly why they make that choice to have different narrators for the couple. I'm just questioning. I'm not saying what should be different or if. <laughs> we get some negative <laughs> feedback on that idea. Wondering why the status quo has to be quo. That's all. Yeah. Must we quo? Fair. Must we? <laughs> Are you happy for their happy, Em? I'm glad they have each other. <laughs> That's such a you answer. (laughs) Then I'm glad I gave it. (laughs) I can't say, because it didn't happen, that I reached the end and was like, oh, yes. Oh, I'm so happy. Yay, love, or whatever. It was more just like, oh, they found each other. That's that's wonderful. Moving on. (laughs) That was my reaction. (laughs) What about you? Are you happy for their happy? I can kind of understand why you feel the way you feel because this story kind of ends when they get together and they're on equal footing. Yeah. They finally found each other. I mean, that's how it ends. And I'm I'm happy that Tess had that chance to go back and hopefully process at least a little bit her experiences and decide what she wanted for herself with no one forcing her to decide anything. Yeah. And then not only that, she had to fight to get Q to accept what she wanted, which shows that she wanted it like she really wanted it yeah and again it highlights the power imbalance yeah and i think for this story it was especially important for her to have that time to be apart and then re-engage on her own terms yes it sounds like he's amenable to those terms i mean really i guess i'd have to read the other two books to find out how happy i am that they're together but I was kind of excited that they both felt kind of bloodthirsty about the sex traffickers <laughs> and were planning to go get revenge. I'm like, heck yeah, this sounds like a story Em would read. Yes, yes it does. <laughs> In fact, I might. Revenge. 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 So yeah, I'm I'm provisionally happy for their happy. It seems like they're going to be happy, but time will tell. I think, too, it's it's hard to really think about them as a couple because for the majority of the book, they aren't a yeah, couple. They're not. There's a big part of the book that Q isn't even in because there's the whole life before Q when she's with Brax. There's the whole Mexico trip. There's her ordeal when she's captured and enslaved. We don't get to Q to like, I would say at least a third of the way through the book, really. Yeah, but I mean, you needed that story time and I think it 
it helps too that this is a series so you get more quote-unquote couple time later but you needed that time in the beginning away from Q. I agree and and it really made Tess's character feel more fleshed out. I think the author used that time to try to help the reader understand why Tess makes the choices she does but it does affect the happily ever after. Yes it impacts it. How do you rate them? How do you rate Tess? So I'm looking at my notes. I usually do these like right after I finish listening or reading in some, in some cases. I, I think I yes. I wasn't paying attention to what I was typing, but uh-huh. I kind of feel like maybe it's still appropriate. So I'm going to leave the typo there and I'll see how it goes. Okay, so what I think I was going for initially when when I wrote the rating was awkwardly frustrating. But uh-huh. when I ended up typing... <laughs> was aw fucky frustrating. <laughs> and you just left I it? don't think I noticed it. Honestly, like I was typing and just moved <laughs> on and was doing so hurriedly and autocorrect didn't do anything about it, which is surprising because they often like to mess with my shit. So, yeah, I'm just going to leave that alone because... <laughs> Okay, well, why was she off-a-key frustrating? (laughs) Explain yourself, Em. Do I have to? (laughs) Yes. That's the point of this podcast. (laughs) I I was misled to think that the point was something else. Your fan needs answers. (laughs) My fan. My fan won't care. (laughs) I think when it came to the awkward, that... That I can explain. And we'll start there. (laughs) Okay. It was frustrating to me how much she didn't fight for herself. And she did. Like when it came, when push came to shove, when it was like her versus the traffickers, she fought. You know, she did advocate for herself a lot. It was always like she was using one hand to fight for herself while the other hand she was using kind of to smack herself, if that makes sense. And that was just frustrating. Especially when she's realizing, like, sexually what she wants, it was still like, oh no, I'm I'm crappy because of this. Rather than acknowledging, like, this is what you want, this is what you need. Why are you continuing to beat yourself up over it? Especially when the world around her was doing quite enough of that to her. <laughs> Boy, were they. And as far as the aw-fucky, I, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> Autocorrect and me have have words that we need to I I don't know I think it's a Freudian (laughs) slip I think there's some subconscious thought trying to worm its way out so what about you how did you rate our dearly beloved Tess number 58 I would say she also has an A side and a B side (laughs) we really like that A side and B side yeah this is my second A side B side heroine I guess but I don't I don't think I noticed it as much I'm glad you do notice it. Because there were so many things about her that were awesome. She never gave up. She always, always, always fought. Even when she lost or got beaten down, she still, still was looking for a way to, to get out and escape and be her own person even when she was with q she didn't fully 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 submit to him until she had at least a pretty good idea that he did care about her she had her standard that she stood up for really within the realm of her ability 
I think she had a good character arc also because she starts out with Brax and she she's in this caretaker, almost like a mommy role with him. And over the course of the story, when she gets back with Brax, she starts to fall back into that role. But she's looking for a way out and she's relieved when she sees, oh, I don't have to do this. He's actually got someone else. This isn't my problem anymore. There was a lot that I liked about her. And I, I especially liked when she went back to Q and told him, like, these are my terms. Do you want me on these terms? Do you still feel in that moment that she is maybe not consciously but using male characters Brax first thank you to define her so let's get okay. to the b-side okay and i'll answer that let's <laughs> so that's that's the a side the awesome side the b side or the bleh side yeah she really does she attaches to both male characters yeah. really claws out clingy no but what i think she's seeking is a sense of belonging she wants to have a person and she's never had one before and when she was with Brax she thought she had one but really she didn't because he never looked out no. for her it wasn't a mutual thing yeah. if we're to believe her story her parents were absolute neglectful shitheads yeah and her brother wasn't much of anything yeah her brother was not even there he was just mentioned and Brax wanted like a little porcelain doll that he could sometimes gently yeah. fuck that is not what tess wanted to be sadly no <laughs> and when she gets to q initially she's so caught up and still like i want to escape i need to be free which you know good for her that's a side test but meanwhile she's beating herself up in her head like you said what's wrong with me what did i do to deserve feeling this way it must be because i was into kink that now i'm a sex yeah. slave like no no you don't deserve sexual slavery because you no. want domination like that's no <laughs> no there are two <laughs> two very different yeah, things are. and it just seems like incredibly frustrating Ah, fuck you frustrating <laughs> even <laughs> Oh, gosh. <laughs> Can you just take a moment to just experience what you're feeling without having all this judgment in your mind? Notice that you're feeling these things and notice what caused those feelings. And just do that a little bit without thinking about how you're a terrible person. Do you think Tess would have benefited from appreciating the fact that it wasn't about her, that it was other people wanting things or doing things to her, at her, or whatever. But it wasn't actually about her. You know, when she's in those moments where she's questioning, why me? Her actually having that moment of, it has nothing to do with me. And everything to do with them. And what's in their heads. Yeah, it may have benefited her character. I mean, she is pretty young. Yeah, do we know her age? I can't remember. Yeah, she's 20. Oh, yeah, she is young. I mean, I, I think probably a lot of people around her age still think about things a bit myopically. I think it would have been a good opportunity for her character to experience more growth because really the main the main growth that she experiences is learning that she's in charge of herself, not other people. Which is not a bad realization to reach either. And she gets to choose what happens to her or what she does and she she accepts her power and owns it. I think that's a great journey, but yeah, she could have had more growth. Maybe she does in the future book. Maybe. 
We'll have to find out. How do you feel about Q? He's awkward for me. In the sense that, like, he, of course, is put in a better light when you compare him to others who are, for various yes. reasons, far crappier. So many times I just found him annoying. <laughs> Especially where the, I'm going to keep these things from you, such as my real intent, my real purpose for, for having ladies come through here and whatnot. Why, why not just tell her? Why not stop the Russian before he did the creepy thing? I couldn't really root for him as a hero, even my inclination to do so more so after you find out, oh, so he's trying to be good. Well, that's nice. <laughs> it was sort of too late because my opinions of him had already formed, you know, so it was like, oh, well, good job, buddy. Have a cookie. But you could have done other things differently, especially since Tess wasn't one of those frightened little deers that find their way to you. You rather wanted her to fight you rather than explain to her, I'm trying to help you. Please don't run away. The thing is, is Tess didn't have to stay there as long as she was forced to because she wasn't in that traumatized, subservient mode. Yeah, you get that rather stark comparison when we're introduced to Safina at the end. Yeah, I mean, she could have been set free sooner. Of course, Q didn't want that because he was attracted to her. If he had told her the truth, and, and I mean, that's the thing is how much could have that have been avoided? And if it was avoided, then how much story is there? But <laughs> <laughs> what about you? How did you rate our hero? Did he have an A side and a B side? No, I rated Q awkward. Mm. Mm -hmm. I have similar feelings to you. I think my biggest question for Q is why did this have to be, a, you know, a secret? Why? And the only answer that I can come up with, and maybe I'm just not creative enough, is that it served his own fuck upness. Yeah, no. And in that case... I mean, again, this is a dark romance, so that's acceptable. But in that case, it's hard to understand still some of the choices he makes. I think the story I would have liked is if once she gets to Q's house, he tries to treat her like one of the other slaves, like one of the other yeah. women that he helped. Yeah, yeah. And have her come to him, which still, I mean, it would have been a little Stockholm syndrome-y, I suppose. But have more interactions where he's trying to keep this role that he's set for himself and she's pushing him. Yeah. I think I would have preferred that. I think that the way he's written makes him a more dangerous character. I agree. He has this control that he's kept so tightly and he's given himself permission to do things that previously he did not give himself permission to do. And then there's that issue of consent because it's... It's clear he understands it he understands consent yeah. and he deliberately withheld even that part at the end where he gives her the safe word he could have done that earlier yes he withheld like even that from her because of his desires it makes him an interesting character he's very interesting but he's also hard to understand and I don't feel like I understand why he made all the choices he made. And part of that could be that we don't really get his point of view. And when we do get his point of view, it's very whiny. Like, I'm a monster. He's just like Tess. <laughs> What's wrong with me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's like, dude, yeah, you saw some fucked up shit when you were a kid, and it possibly fucked with your proclivities as an adult, but you can act those out in a way that doesn't hurt anyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And and not and not be a monster. It's the same. They have the same problem. Both of them. They want what they want, but they don't want to want it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How did you rate the book? I gave the book a three. I think a lot of that was because Tess kept fighting. She did her best to advocate for herself. I ended up feeling pretty bad for her just overall. And I think that impacted my ability then to feel happy for her and whatnot overall. Because it's like, she is so young. She has self-identity issues. And she's not really given a chance to work any of those out. It's more like, here's your path. It's more, it seems more like a pick your poison than pick your joy or something like that. What about you? How did you rate the book? I rated it a 3.5. I liked the story quite a bit. I tend to like darker stories and darker heroes and a bit of evilness (laughs) and that sort of thing. I really appreciated Tess's actions, her warrior spirit. I would say the reason I rated it lower rather than higher is that this is going to sound so mean, but it's that Tess is so wishy-washy. I'm going to do this. No, I'm going to do this other thing. I'm I'm awesome. No, I'm a terrible, horrible person. It's back and forth and back and forth. And I just... Do you think it was too much of a swing between the two? That I think it just is like, she doesn't even know herself. How can she go and give herself to a man who wants to treat her like a slave? Yeah, well, she's young. When you don't, when you don't even know who you are. Part of that comes with growing up which she hasn't really been able to do. And who knows if she'll be able to do that in, in future. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just maturity and experience. And I mean, she's had a lot of experiences right one after another really quickly. But she thinks about it for a month. I think that is what made it difficult for me to connect with the heroine. And then we just didn't really get enough of Q to really understand him fully. And one of the things I especially like is when I can really get into the mind of a character that thinks very differently from me. Yeah. And I would have appreciated more of an opportunity to do that in this book. Yeah, that makes sense. But overall, I enjoyed it. I read it in one sitting. (laughs) So did you feel romanced? I think I didn't get the chance to feel romanced in this book. I think that if I read the second book, I would be more likely to be romanced. Because in this book, it ends with them together, like finally, as a couple. The whole rest of the book is her journey, not necessarily their journey together as a couple. So I would say no for this book. What about you? Did you feel romanced? No, but that won't surprise you. (laughs) Yeah, I just, I just couldn't. I think some things that would have helped Like you were saying earlier, like, since he clearly understands consent, having things adjusted towards that probably would have helped because I don't feel like this is a book where they are, and I could be completely wrong, but it didn't feel to me like a book where they're falling in love. Yeah, not especially. They are barely learning to communicate. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, that's fine. That can be entertaining, but... I'm unlikely to feel romanced as a result. Where it's like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. You, you wanted you wanted to have a safe word. Silly me. It never occurred to me. Whoopsie. 
I, I apparently didn't get the hint, you know, when you kept escaping and fighting me. I'm trying to help you. Why won't you let me? It's like, well, maybe she can help herself a little. You might have to see her as a bit of an equal. I'm sorry if that's a problem. It's okay to have a power imbalance, but in order for that to feel romantic, you know, there has to be the bare minimum of some sort of respect or care, anything like that. Yeah, and that's what Tess wanted. She wanted to know he cared about her. And I appreciate Tess wanting that. (laughs) Yeah. He clearly is not comfortable with giving that either because he just, he feels like he's such a monster. You want to know something funny? Yes, always. (laughs) Is every time... You know, it's like, I'm a monster. I'm picturing, like, that line from Beauty and the Beast, like the cartoon, who could ever love a beast? (laughs) What else have you been reading? So I continued to read some Penny Reed. I have read Neanderthal Seeks Human and Neanderthal Marries Human. And that is the love story of... Janie and Quinn. Nice. Yes. She's just a tad awkward. And he's just a tad grumpy, but they somehow <laughs> make it work. Spoiler alert. He is so grumpy. I really appreciate it. He him. is. Hey, he is a grumpy <laughs> male character I enjoyed. They do exist. <laughs> So Neanderthal Seeks Human is part of the Knitting in the City series because we read the third book in that series with Sandra and Alex. So this is actually the first book in that series. So we get introduced. I love Penny Reed. I think she's great. She is. She's very, very enjoyable. I've read quite a bit of her books. I really like the, is it the Winston Brothers series? It's a bunch of bearded, (laughs) redheaded, (laughs) lumberjacky type guys. I'm working my way towards that series. I'm getting through the series. I'm getting there. I mean, y'all, lumbersexual is a thing. Yes, it is. (laughs) And and I am. Know who you are and do it on purpose. Damn right. (laughs) So what have you been reading? Something lumber sexual in nature not this time um actually i just finished a book called high moon by Uh katie wilde and this is part of it's sort of a series but not really like they're not necessarily related but they take place in the same world okay so standalone yeah this takes place in a world where wolfkin and berserkers exist berserkers are bear shifters sort of and wolfkin are werewolf shifters sort of Um, and i say sort of because the wolf shifter in this book when he shifts he doesn't turn into like a full actual wolf he turns into more like a monstrous wolfman sort of creature the thing about this book that was kind of interesting is that it's a Western. Awesome. <laughs> oh my gosh, I am so intrigued. I haven't read like too many um, Western themed romances, although I know that's a big thing. Is it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a thing. <laughs> and it, it is contemporary. This woman owns a ranch that she inherited from her parents in a very small town. And there's this company that's been wanting to buy her property. And they've bought like all the other properties around her and they want hers and she won't sell it because she has a sentimental attachment to it. And they've tried doing things to bully her into selling oh, the property. Buttholes. Meanwhile, the man who's a wolf shifter is going through the town searching for clues as to who killed his family. So he's on this self-appointed mission to get revenge 
revenge upon the people who murdered his family and he smells this wonderful glorious scent of course and happens to run into the source of that scent who is our heroine the ranch owner it's a really good story um i liked the interactions between the characters they had really good chemistry and it was just kind of an interesting different read for me because i haven't read very many westerns in general or western romances and i don't read a whole lot of shifter books either so if you're into either or both of those things you'll probably like this that sounds fun all right that's it for this time Check out our website, romancebeepodcast.com, for show notes, other episodes, and our upcoming reads. And don't forget, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Join us next time when we discuss Tin by Candace Robinson and Amber Ardul. Bye! Bye! I actually read more romance now than I have ever read before. <laughs> Have I mentioned lately how you're the bestest friend? I don't think so, but I'll take it. The bestest, most wonderful friend ever. Can I get, well, I was going to say, can I get it in a mug? But I don't need a mug. Maybe a pin. A nice little pin that I can hopefully not injure myself. A medal. <laughs> a medal. Nice heavy medal that I can wear around my neck. Myself accidentally when I forget that it's there. <laughs> I'll have a bruised face and be like, no, no, trust me, I've earned this. But that, wait, that sounds bad. Oh, That's not then what you're going to sound like Tess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs>